The Art of Being Human presents podcast on the work of Byron Katie. This episode is part of the Why the Work Works series, which focuses on inspiring, explaining and enhancing your praxis through a theoretical understanding of how the work works. This is session two, the most important thing there is to say about anything with Ernest Holmes Svensson. For more podcasts on the work of Byron Katie, go to www.theartofbeinghuman.dk slash podcasts. And now session two, the most important thing there is to say about anything. Hello, my name is Ernest and I am your travel companion on this journey into a deeper understanding of how the mind works and how to end suffering. This is episode two of the Why the Work Works series. I have entitled it The Most Important Thing There Is to Say About Anything, and in a moment I'm going to tell you what that is. There's only one thing I want to say before I tell you the most important thing there is to say about anything, and it is that it's very simple. So simple, in fact, that it's hard for most people to understand how important it really is when they hear it for the first time, or the second, for that matter. But here it is. The most important thing there is to say about anything is this. There is only now. That's it. There is only now. This, right now, is the only thing that exists. As I said, it's very simple. But it's the most important thing there is to say about anything because it means that anything that isn't now isn't real. It's imagined. It only exists in our thoughts. Take the future, for example. Our ability to imagine the future is one of our most valuable tools. Whether we are using it to set a bear trap or to orient ourselves in traffic, our ability to imagine the future is such an integral part of our way of operating that we hardly notice it. And we are so good at it that we often believe that what we imagine about the future is real. But it isn't, of course. After all, where is the future? Right now, in this moment, as you listen to these words, where is it? Where is tomorrow? Where is next year? The answer is, in your mind. The future only exists as a thought, as images in your internal world, extrapolations from your experiences, simulations based on your map of reality. You may think, for instance, that you are going to go to the movies tonight. You have ordered the tickets, maybe you've even picked them up, you have arranged where to meet your friends, everything is in place. And then the phone rings, your daughter has been injured at gymnastics, and you end up spending the evening at the emergency room instead. You were absolutely certain you knew what your future held for you, and yet it changed, because what you were so certain of was in fact nothing but an idea, a simulation, a guess based on the information that was available at the time. Our future does not exist. It is a simulation in our minds which we create based on our map of reality. And even though we forget it sometimes, very few people find it difficult to see that it must, of course, be like this. That the future doesn't exist out there, but rather is present here and now, 
as thoughts in our minds. It can be a little more challenging to accept that it works the same way with the past. Still, where is the past right now? Where is what you did yesterday? Where is last week? Where is my trip to the kitchen to make tea or the thunderstorm that rolled in over my house half an hour ago? Just like with the future, there is only one answer. In my mind. The past isn't here. The only thing here is my memory of the past, just as it's only what I imagine about the future that actually exists. What's confusing to us about saying that the past is no longer here is that the apparent effects of the past still are. You can remember what I said a minute ago, ergo you must have heard it. It's wet on the terrace, ergo it must have rained. The newspaper is on the table, ergo you must have fetched it from the mailbox outside. And this is all quite correct. There's nothing wrong with our memories. It's simply that although the newspaper is there, the trip to the mailbox isn't. It exists only as a memory. Images, sounds and physical sensations that you are now recreating. The situation itself is gone. All that's left are some signal patterns in the nerve cells in your brain. You can simulate the event in your mind, you can recreate part of the sensory signals you received when you were outside, and in that way experience it again. You can do it many times, just as I can recreate the sound of the thunder in my mind. Maybe I even filmed it on my phone so that it's even easier to recreate the details. But it's not real. It's all simulations. Patterns in my neural pathways, ones and zeros in my phone's memory, which only exist in the now. There have been numerous studies focusing on the process of how we remember the past. And although there are many things we still don't fully understand about the brain, one point is clear. Our memory doesn't function the way most people think it does. The most common metaphor for memory is that our brains are like recording devices, storing up all the impressions they receive via the different senses, and that remembering is equivalent to replaying those recordings like you'd replay a film. But the truth is that it would be far too uneconomical for the brain to store an exact copy of everything we experience. Instead, we store just a few elements, a look, a sound, the color of a sweater, a smell, and then we store the knowledge that these elements, all of which are stashed away in completely different areas of the brain, were at one time active simultaneously. After that, whenever we want to remember the situation, we do so by recalling these different fragments and using them to reconstruct it, plucking in the gaps with what we think was properly there when it happened. But in fact, what we use to pluck the gaps is pure imagination. Just as the impressions we genuinely did store are only a faint reflection of the neural patterns that were active when we had the experience the first time round. In other words, only a small proportion of any given memory is created from stored information. By far the greater part is something we've invented based on our map of reality. The result is that our memory is extremely unreliable. Take, for example, an experiment conducted at the University of Washington 
where a group of test persons were shown a video of a traffic accident, after which they were asked how quickly they thought the cars were going when they hit each other. Then they were asked whether they had seen any shattered glass in the video. In reality, there wasn't any, but 14% answered that there was, which is entirely to be expected. The interesting thing is that if the first question was formulated in a different way, how quickly were the cars going when they smashed into each other, 32% subsequently answered that they had seen shattered glass. This tiny difference, hit versus smashed into, meant that more than twice as many people falsely remembered having seen shattered glass. And people are very sure of themselves in this regard. In a related experiment, a group of adults were shown a manipulated childhood photograph of themselves in a hot air balloon. And afterwards, half of them said they could remember the incident, recounting it in vivid detail, even though in reality it had never taken place. Let me repeat that. Half of them said they could remember an event that had in reality never taken place. We create our memories. And by now, there are so many different experiments that lead to the same conclusion that there is no longer any real doubt that this is how it works. Our memories of the past aren't lying in some archive deep inside our brains or on a mental hard disk ready to be replayed. Our memories are constructions we create afresh each time we remember something. And the situation and emotional state we find ourselves in when we remember has a crucial effect on the contents of that construction. Say, for example, that we have run a meeting that we actually experienced as quite pleasant and successful at the time. But the next day, we receive some negative feedback from some of the participants. Suddenly, we'll remember the meeting in a completely different way. Not because anything changed in the past, but because something changed now. Our understanding of the meeting changed, and now we project a different story backwards in time. If we don't understand that time is an illusion, by which I mean that there is only the present, and that all ideas about the past and future are only thoughts, then we believe that our past is a fixed and objective thing which has a decisive influence on who we are today. In reality, the opposite is the case. Who we are today has a decisive influence on our past. There is no such thing as a past independent of who we are today. And the same goes for the future. They have no real existence outside of us. After all, where would they be? Now is all there is and all there ever has been. Time is a story we create in our minds. We have never experienced anything other than now. Just like we have never experienced anything other than here. Imagine that it's Monday morning. The alarm clock rings, you get up, eat breakfast, and get ready to go to work. And while you're brushing your teeth, you think about the new water coolers that have been installed at your office. What you don't know is that a gas line exploded underneath your office building during the night, raising it to the ground. All that's left is a pile of rubble, and the sparkling new water coolers have been crushed beyond all recognition. In so-called objective reality, the building no longer exists. But because you don't know that, in your thoughts, it's still there, just as it usually is. Because, in fact, it's just a simulation.
Just as other moments in time besides now can only exist in your imagination, so can other places besides here. When you're sitting in your living room, everything outside is something you're imagining. You can think about your place of work, and you can think about your summer cottage, seeing everything clearly before you, but in that moment as you sit in your living room, they're made of exactly the same material as the past and future. In that moment, you're only experiencing them in your imagination. Which is pretty obvious. You do not, after all, have some magical surveillance camera in your head. It is not your real workplace or your real summer cottage, you see. The challenge is that when it comes to your childhood room where you took your first steps, which has long since been torn down and rebuilt, or to a building which has been raised to the ground, it's obvious that these places only exist in our imaginations. But when we talk about things that still exist, we get confused. Because they are still there, we say to ourselves. The summer cottage is out there somewhere while we sit here and think about it, so we are thinking about something real. It might help to think of it this way. There are two versions of everything. The objective version, the one out there in so-called reality, and the subjective version, your inner representation of it, which only exists in your imagination. These two versions sometimes overlap, like when we think about a summer cottage that does in fact exist, but in truth they are independent of each other. Your inner representation of the office exists completely independently of whether, in so-called objective reality, the building is still standing. And this is the thing. The only reality you can ever experience is your subjective one. After all, you can only be in one place at any given time, and when you're here, all other places are therefore simply something you're imagining. When, for example, you're sitting in your living room, the kitchen, as you experience it, only exists as an idea in your mind. Which is clearly not the same as saying that the kitchen isn't there. I'm not talking about whether the kitchen exists. I'm talking about how. In other words, in what form the kitchen exists for you. And for you right now, as you sit in the living room, the kitchen is only a thought a representation in your internal world, a combination of images and sensations, something you imagine. And in this sense, just like your memories of the past and your projections of the future, it's profoundly shaped by the state you're in as you think about it and how it is represented in your map of reality. If I'm making a big deal about pointing out the difference between thoughts and reality, it's because, as I said in the last episode, our problems are never, in fact, caused by reality. They are caused by our thoughts. And if we don't recognize that there is a difference between thoughts and reality, then we will believe that reality is the problem, and that the solution is therefore to change reality. But that's a very roundabout way of doing things. It's like trying to tarmac the whole world because the uneven surface is making our feet sore. It's much easier, and far more effective, to simply put shoes on. The fact is that our minds are a simulator, and it's in our simulations that problems arise. Picture yourself sitting in your favorite chair reading a good book. 
It's a gorgeous summer's day, and a ray of sunshine falls through the window as you hear the birds singing in the trees outside. Suddenly, you start thinking about the unpleasant conversation you had with a colleague yesterday. She grumbled about the way you completed a task, claiming you hadn't been thorough enough. You go over the discussion in your mind, thinking about the unfairness of what she said, and you imagine putting her in her place, telling her everything you didn't manage to verbalize at the time. But what if she goes to your boss and complains? A nod of anxiety in your stomach, you visualize the meeting in his office, picturing your colleague, presenting everything in a light that makes you look incompetent. You defend yourself, pointing out the pressure you're under and the unreasonable atmosphere in your department, and instantly you flash back to last week's meeting where you were told that your team was going to take on a whole new string of tasks without being given additional resources. In reality, you're still sitting in your favorite chair. It's still a gorgeous summer's day. The sun is shining and the birds are singing, but in your mind, you're somewhere completely different. Our minds are a simulator. It's by simulating the future that you decide what to do next. It is simulating your childhood that tells you who you are. And it is simulating your colleagues that means you can be sitting in your favorite chair, yet mentally and emotionally be somewhere completely different. Simulating reality is the mind's primary function. It's what enables us to experience our world in time and space, and it's what enables us to understand what is going on right now. When, for instance, you hear the word elephant, you can understand what it means because you can simulate an elephant in your mind. You've spent a whole lifetime building a map of reality where certain combinations of sounds, on the face of it completely meaningless, are connected to certain very specific images. When you hear the word elephant, a picture of an elephant appears in your head. You simulate an elephant in your inner world. Your capacity to simulate things that aren't really there is the basis of all thought. When a small child works out or realizes that he can pull a box over to the kitchen table and clamber up onto it to reach the cake plate, what's actually happening is that he's simulating the solution in his mind. The box has never been over by the kitchen table before, but he's tried climbing on it by the sofa and has discovered that he can use it to get higher up. He's already tried standing by the kitchen table and established that he can't reach the plate. So he stitches these two sensory experiences together into a completely new combination, something he hasn't tried yet, which is the possibility of reaching the cake plate by standing on the box and finds a solution to his problem. In the world of cognitive research, this process is called conceptual integration, or sometimes conceptual blending. Thought is our ability to blend different sensory impressions into new combinations. The more sensory impressions, i.e. the more experience, we have, and the more refined the elements we can break these impressions down into, the more advanced the combinations we can create, and the better we are at thinking. From concrete problem-solving to abstract mathematics, all our thoughts consists of representations of reality based on sensory perceptions. Because everything that exists in our minds has arrived there through the senses. 
This is also why our language is so deeply rooted in sensory experience. Something rings a bell, for instance, or it leaves a bitter taste in your mouth. Our memory is foggy. It smells fishy. We build an argument. We get to the core of the matter. We are in the dark. We hold on to our beliefs and we grasp an idea. Language and thought, from the very concrete to the extremely abstract, builds on our ability to manipulate simulated sensory impressions in our minds. Sounds, physical sensations, visual impressions, smells and tastes. These are the building blocks our inner worlds are made of, and they are what we translate all terms and ideas into when we work with them. But this isn't necessarily something we notice. You may not be aware of the image of the elephant when you hear the word, because most of these processes are unconscious. Our thinking would slow dramatically and we'd be completely overwhelmed if we were conscious of every single step in a blending network. Our brains are therefore split into an extremely fast unconscious part and a much slower conscious part, and most people have no notion of the vast number of sensory processes that are actually involved in the unconscious bit whenever we think. But if we slow things down and become more aware, we can catch a glimpse of what's going on in the background. Try, for instance, to explore the way you experience a word like comfort. What is comfort? Close your eyes and work out what comfort means to you. How do you understand it? What is comfy? If you stay still and pay attention, you can see the inner images you've woven around the word. Maybe you feel a sensation in your body. Maybe you even experience a color or a sound or a certain taste. Now try it with another word. Success. Stay still and observe what happens inside you when you focus on the word success. It's another set of images, another physical sensation, another soundtrack, another set of elements brought out from your map of reality. And I'm being a little thorough with this, because it's a very important aspect to understand when we start doing the work. The better we get at noticing what's going on in the background when we have our so-called negative reactions or get caught in stressful patterns of thinking, the deeper we can go in our work. Because we use our simulators to understand everything that goes on around us. How do you know, for example, that a car can drive if you only see it parked on the street? How do you even know what that weird metal box is? You know, because at the very moment your eyes fall on it, based on your map of reality, you activate a complex network of simulations which tell you what it is you're looking at. Without even being aware of it, you see cars drive and brake, you see car doors open and close, you experience what it's like to sit in a car and how it feels to drive through traffic, you register the smell of petrol and the sound of the engine, a few of your stronger car-related memories pop up, and so on all of them simulated in the depths of your mind. It makes no difference whether you hear the word car, see a picture of a car, or look at a real car parked on the street. Whatever the specifics of the situation, it's your map of reality and its simulations that enable you to understand what a car is. If you're dubious as to how active your simulator is when you try to understand the world, 
you can simply spend a little time staring at an anthill or chatting with your friends about what it's like to have lice. Just consider that. Having lice. Being home to those tiny bloodsuckers on your scalp. Before you know it, you'll be feeling the little creatures crawling around in your hair. Because you can't know what they are without simulating a sensory experience. We are constantly using our simulators like this to expand and interpret our reality. In the last episode, I described our map of reality as a filter that exists between us and the world, which tells us what the world is. And now we can better understand how this works. When the farmer, the geologist and the real estate agent look at the plowing field, they each superimpose different simulations, different layers of information and meaning onto the field based on their different maps of reality. And these layers are essential to our ability to understand the world. Try letting your gaze wander and look at the things around you right now. Notice how your mind is constantly telling you what it is you're seeing. You know what everything is because you're superimposing these layers of simulated information onto raw reality. Sometimes the layers are thin and you can relate fairly openly to what you see. Other times you put so many layers of information on top of things that you can barely discern the reality beyond them. It's like when you see a photo of yourself and suddenly discover how worn your jacket is. You've never noticed before, because even though you use the jacket every day, you long ago stopped actually seeing it. What you normally see is a simulation, the way you imagine it looks, the way it looked when you bought it. But now, experiencing it through the photo, you suddenly see it with fresh eyes and realize that it's high time to get a new one. Or take this moment, for example. How much of what's going on right now is a simulation? I'm talking to you, but for me, you currently exist only as an idea. I'm also being recorded, but I don't even know how to begin listing all the different simulations that this notion entails. And while I'm busy with all these constructions, I also have a clear idea of what's beyond the walls around me. I simulate the rest of the building, the street, the neighbors. I simulate the entire city, the country, the planet even. And in fact... I need go no further than the edge of my field of vision before my simulations kick in. As soon as I shift my gaze, my simulator takes control of holding my surroundings steady. That's why I'm not surprised when I look back and see that my pen is still lying on the table. I simulate everything I can't see. The armchair behind me, the coffee table, the window. Just as you're simulating them as you hear this. Try and take a closer look. What does the armchair look like? It's in there somewhere, because that's the only way you can understand what I'm saying. Here, I just heard a car drive by. Or rather, I believe I heard a car drive by. In reality, I heard a sound which I interpreted to be a car. And then I saw an image of a car driving by. But really, that was only a simulation. And now, my gaze falls on a teacup by my hand. I know instantly what it is, my favorite cup. I can feel what it's like to hold it, what it's like to raise it to my mouth, what it's like to drink from it. And at the same time, I see my daughter, who's always trying to get hold of it before I do, 
and I hear her laughter and sense how it feels to fight over it with her. It's much more than just a cup. It's loaded with meaning, and the sight of it quickly draws me into an enormous network of associations and trains of thought. Our whole lives play out in this expanded reality. From our capacity to think, which builds on our ability to imagine things that don't exist, to our memories of the past and conceptions of the future, to our ideas about what's happening elsewhere, and even to the way we create meaning in what's going on right now, our simulators are involved. Without them, our world would fall apart. Therefore, as I said last time, our ability to construct unique maps of reality and then to use them to simulate that which is not is not simply our most important tool. It defines us as a species. Without this ability, nothing we call human would make any sense. But at the same time, this ability is our greatest challenge because our maps of reality, and by extension our simulations, are anything but neutral. Built into the connections that link the side of my favorite cup with thoughts about my daughter, the word elephant with the animal, and the sound of a car with my understanding of how it works, is a whole conception of the world. Our mind simulators don't just constitute the difference between us and all other species. They also constitute the difference between you and me. The structures that are built into your map of reality, which determine what images appear when you hear the word armchair, are completely different from those built into mine. That's why your thoughts are completely different too. That's why you perceive the world differently, and that's why your problems are completely different from mine. But as Mark Twain said, I've had lots of problems in my life. Most of them never happened. How many of your problems are real, and how many only exist as simulations right now? Take a look. If you didn't have a past and a future, would any of your problems exist right now? You live in a simulation. A simulation which is extremely sensitive to interpretations, misperceptions, misunderstandings, and wrong conclusions. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. Not at all. This is how we work. This is what is so unique about us. We can think in terms of past and future. We can imagine that which is not. It is our stories that make us human. It's our stories that create meaning in our lives. But they are simulations. They are projections that we ourselves create. And our suffering occur when we forget this. When we imagine a future and think it is real. Or we sit in our favorite chair and worry about a grumbling colleague. Or we look at our boyfriend and think he's being disrespectful. It's like a movie projector that projects an image onto the screen. We are looking at the screen, but the image comes from the projector. And if we want to change something on the screen, it's the film strip we must work on. Our map of reality is the film strip. And it's the beliefs on the film strip that create the movie. If we want to change something in the movie, in the simulation we call reality, it's our beliefs we must change. If, for example, we live in a reality where we think we have a disrespectful boyfriend, we can of course replace the boyfriend. But if the problem is in fact a fixed belief about what respect is, it'll not be long before we meet a new person who doesn't respect us. Because it's not the person that is the problem. It's the story. It's the simulation. It's the beliefs we construct our reality from that is the root cause. 
This is why there is only now is the most important thing there is to say about anything. Because once we understand that this whole world we live in, with all of its problems, is really our own projection, we can begin to make some real change. There is only now. Everything outside of what you're sensing directly right now, including whatever meaning you ascribe to those sensations, is a simulation. And it's based on a structure that is so deep in you that you're not even aware it's there, your map of reality. That is the underlying structure from which you project your entire world. And so, once again, we return to the work. The work is the process through which we can change the film strip. The work is a way to put on shoes instead of having to tarmac the whole world. And very soon, I'll explain to you exactly how to do that. But once again, I invite you to a little bit of patience. There is still one crucial point I want to cover before we direct our attention at the work itself. Our emotional reactions. This is what the next episode is about. It's called Creating Meaning, and I truly suggest you listen to that also. It's the last piece of the puzzle. And once you have that, you are ready to dive into the work, equipped with all you need to know to ensure you get off on the right foot. So, I am Ernest. Thank you for joining me. Until we meet again, I remain your simulation. And I hope to see you back for another episode on how the mind works and how to end suffering. The work of Byron Katie is copyrighted by Byron Katie International. You can read more on www.thework.com. For more podcasts like this one, visit theartofbeinghuman.dk. And feel free to contact me if you have any questions or comments to this podcast. You can find my contact information at theartofbeinghuman.dk or you can simply send an email to ernest at kavm.dk. That is ernest at kiloalphavictormike.dk. Thank you for listening.